You're listening to The Maniculum, pointing the finger at the Middle Ages. We bring you the choicest medieval nonsense, discuss and evaluate it, then pillage it for our own geeky purposes. You're back. Yes, welcome back to another exciting installment of Perlis Vows. Hopefully that was a decent trumpet noise, I don't know. <laughs> you usually do the sound effects. <laughs> There we go. Nice. Yes. Alrighty. But before we dive into this weird text again, we have a Patreon shout out to do. And this week's patron shout out is to Kelly Shipley, who's part of our $10 tier. And they are a shrine slime shaman. Say that 10 times fast. So thank you so much, Kelly, for supporting the podcast. And since you are a $10 patron, you are one of our shamans you have exclusive access to all of our bonus posts that is on the patreon so that's extra behind the scenes stuff it shows some art that hasn't quite come out yet it's got like behind the scenes of where we work how we work cat pictures dog pictures all of the above so if you are interested please support the podcast on the patreon and if you want to do a one-time payment, that's great. If you want to do uh, multiple, that's awesome. Recurring, you'll get some exclusive bonus content if you do. And with that, I would also like to say that if you only have a couple bucks to spare at that moment, please put that towards supporting Ukraine and not towards us, because they are in much, much more of a time of need than we are at the moment. So please consider doing that if you would like to spread your support around we would love to take a couple extra dollars but please for the time being please support what's going on in ukraine and the people who have been impacted by russia's invasion effective for you cool awesome i sprung that on you i was just like you know what that's important yeah like i do have some thoughts about how weird <laughs> it is that or how rather the statement that Past Mac is bungling there is that it is problematic yet unsurprising that Western media is so much more sympathetic to war victims when they come from a country that is commonly perceived as white. However, you should of course support the people of Ukraine and anyone else who is currently suffering from that kind of aggression. Right, absolutely. It's We're living in the weirdest timeline. The weirdest timeline. Like, I was on Reddit today, and I'm, like, scrolling through whatever, and it's like, Jeff Bezos wants to live forever. That's where he's putting his money. And then I scroll the next one down, and it's like, Putin's invading the Ukraine. And I'm like, we're still in a pandemic. Ah! So. I mean, I'm 100% not surprised that Jeff Bezos wants to live forever. I'm not surprised either. I just feel like... We're living in some cyberpunk dystopia, and I feel like we're actually, we can relate more to the medievals than we think we can. Yes. In in those senses. But, you know, you know, we got war, we got plagues, we got people with more money than they know what to do with. So how different are we really? But anyway. What would we call a, like, alternate history dystopia with medieval imagery? Ooh. Like, like, f- frame that out a little. Like what punk? Oh, ooh. Castle punk? No, I don't. Castle punk? Medieval punk doesn't quite work. Sword punk? Sword punk. Sword punk is kind of cool. We might have to use this for one of our adventures. That would be pretty fun. (laughs) (laughs) A medieval punk edition. Or like medieval core? 
because it's not, I don't know. Anyway, in other shout outs and announcements at Al, etc., etc., we had our first Emotional Support Chicken sticker go out to Kelly, one of our patrons, and she made it a beautiful little pin for her SCA kit. Um, that's I don't remember the acronym for it. Society for Creative Anachronism. Anachronism. There we go. It's sort of like a LARP. It's sort of like a reenactment. It's really cool. I've always wanted to try it. But anyway, she turned her sticker into a pin. And if you want to see it and check it out, you definitely should. It's on our social media right now, especially on our Instagram, on our Twitter. So do check that out. And thank you, Kelly, for your continued support of the podcast. And we really hope you like your emotional support chicken. And secondly, in case you missed it, I did a guest episode on Script Lock, which is a podcast with Max and Nick Folkman, two brothers. One writes for Insomniac Games, one writes for Riot. And I went on their podcast and we talked about the art of video game writing and how medievalism can help you with that. So if you're interested in that, please go check out that podcast. It's really, really cool from a game design perspective. It's aimed at game writers and those who want to see sort of the behind the scenes about that stuff. But also, I think it's really, really great for D&D writers, anyone who's creating and wanting to do an interactive sort of narrative style storytelling. And I guested along with Francisca, who was one of the writers on Ori and the Will of the Wisps, which is a super cute game. You should definitely check it out if you haven't. But yeah, so check out the Script Lock podcast. You can just look that up, Script Lock. One word altogether, S-C-R-I-P-T-L-O-C-K. And if you just search my name, you'll be able to find it as well. We're already off to a great start, but point is, yes, we do have a Patreon if you'd like to support that. We also have a Discord, so if you'd like to jump on there and just talk about either the latest podcast or the coolest new article you've read or a new homebrew that you found for your favorite TTRPG, please do. We would love to have you. We also have a Facebook group and Instagram and Twitter. So you can follow us on all of our social media accounts if you so desire. And thank you once more to Kelly for supporting the podcast. We appreciate you. All right. Anyway, Perlis Mouse is a 13th yes. century Arthurian romance from yes. France. It's among the less canonical of the Arthurian romances in that it diverges at many points from the usual plot structure and is generally a very strange thing. Yeah, the author took quite a few liberties with this text. But anyway, we have followed many knights of King Arthur's Table that you will be familiar with, including Gawain, Lancelot, and Percival, and... Gawain and Lancelot are basically looking for Percival. There's a lot of people looking for Percival because he's apparently the good knight. We don't think he's that great due to his mass murdering. Yeah, very... I'm pretty sure, again, that his execution of the Lord of the Fens in our last installment constitutes a war crime of some sort. I would, I would say so. But anyway... Regardless, we are continuing down this path to see if Percival can restore the Holy Grail and the kingdom back to its rightful place. I was going to say, like, revive the Fisher King, but he also died in the last one. So yep. we'll see how this actually turns out. I have no idea how this is going to end, by the way. No idea. I don't know how we can have a happy ending. I'm not actually all the way to the end either. Oh my gosh. 
I don't think there's a happy ending. I think I'm on chapter 34, 30. So like I'm only a couple chapters from the end, but I still haven't gotten to the end yet either. Oh my gosh. Anyway, with bated breath, we dive in yes. to this week's episode of Perilous Vows. Last time on Perilous Vows. Gowan and Percival join forces to free Lancelot from a siege situation. Percival's sister Dindrain finally finds Percival. Dindrain retrieves a piece of the Shroud of Turin from the Perilous Cemetery. Percival defeats the Lord of the Finns and proceeds to drown him in the blood of his men. We learn that the Fisher King is dead, that the King of Castle Mortal has taken over the castle of the Fisher King, and that Percival needs to go do something about it. Branch 16, which is a very short one. Gowan and Lancelot are at King Arthur's court when suddenly two knights ride in, each bearing a knight's corpse. The corpses are described as charred. It would seem that a knight from the Castle of the Giants has declared war on Arthur in revenge for the death of the giant Logren. The new challenger is described as follows. This is a direct quote that I am looking up right now. And remember, Logren was in our last episode. Yes, Logren was killed by King Arthur's son, Loholt, and then... Because he's a weirdo, Loholt slept on top of the giant's corpse. Yes, so weird. And while he was sleeping, Kay murdered him, took the giant's head, and claimed to be the one who killed him. Because why not? Right. But anyway, here's how they describe the issue. It is only right that you know, sire. The knight of the burning dragon has entered your land and is destroying castles and cities and knights and whatever he can attack. And no one dares oppose him, for he is a good foot taller than any knight you have ever seen, with a terrible face, and bent upon wicked deeds. And his sword is three times longer than any knight's sword, and his lance is as much as any man can bear. And two knights could cover themselves with his shield, and on it, the shield, there is the head of a dragon, which throws out fire and flame whenever he wishes, so fierce and scorching that no man can endure it. That's pretty dope. It's extremely dope. It's much more D&D than you'd expect in... In an Arthurian text. Absolutely. So, okay, so when it says it's got a dragon on it, like, I understand that this is probably, like, a painted dragon or, like, a embossed dragon and not, like, a dragon's head that's actually just, like, gruesomely tied or glued to the front of this shield. Uh, it's kind of unclear, but based on future events, I would say that it is at least three-dimensional. It may be embossed, but it's certainly not painted. Ooh, embossed i like that image like golden dragon's head that just magically comes out of the shield i'm yes. here for this yeah again very D. but it throws out fire and flame whenever he wishes so fierce and scorching that no man can endure it and no armor however strong can give protection and just as you see he has dealt with these knights so will he deal with all those who wish to engage in combat with him and so there's our antagonist, the Knight of the Burning Dragon, so-called because he has a dragon that burns things on his shield. Understandable. Gowan and Lancelot both offer to face the Knight of the Burning Dragon, but Arthur just goes, Are you crazy? He'll kill you! And then the branch ends, and we go back to Percival. I mean, I guess it's a good cliffhanger. Yeah, it's literally only a page long in the text I'm dealing with. That's or in, in the um, Bryant translation. God bless. The more we read this text, the more I want it to be turned into a TV show. I know. An animated one, preferably. Yes, absolutely. Like, come on, Disenchanted, you could have done this. I'm just saying. 
I mean, Disenchanted's okay. Well, I've enjoyed it. I haven't seen the most recent seasons. That's fair. I think I only got a couple episodes in. I like the premise. Anyway, Branch 17. In his travels, Percival enters a place called the Lonely Forest, where he encounters the following scene. Again, a direct quote, and a long one, because it's hard to summarize this. He came upon a beautiful glade in the middle of the woods, and looking before him he saw a cross, all red it was, and as he looked towards the far end of the glade he saw a most handsome knight sitting in the shadow of the forest, clad all in white, holding a golden vessel in his hand. And when he turned towards the other end of the glade he saw a maiden sitting there likewise, young and fair and of the greatest beauty, draped in white samite with drops of gold, holding a most beautiful golden vessel in her hand. Josephus tells us, in his divine writing, that out of the forest came a beast as white as new-fallen snow, bigger than a hare but smaller than a fox. Out into the glade she came in alarm, for she bore a litter of twelve in her belly which were yelping like a pack of dogs. And the beast- yeah, I know. Like, Zoe's like, giving us a confused look. Like a kangaroo in her belly, or like still in there? Still in there, I think. Okay. That's terrifying. I would be terrified if I heard a child crying from inside a pregnant woman. Yes. Much less like a massive white beast thing. Well, small beast thing, smaller than a fox. Oh yes, that's fair. Still terrifying. Speaking of which, the beast fled through the glade, terrified by the barking of the dogs inside her. Understandable. Percival leaned on the butt of his lance, gazing at the beast in wonder, and he felt great pity for her, for she looked gentle and very beautiful, and her eyes were like two emeralds. Towards the night she ran in terror, but after she had rested there a while, the dogs began to torture her anew and she ran to the maiden, but she could not rest there long, for the dogs would not cease their yelping and she was very frightened. She did not dare dive into the forest, so she turned to Percival for protection. This sounds like a metaphor again. Are we getting another metaphor? This is definitely a metaphor, yes. Oh, damn it. At least it's not allegory. <laughs> And as she was about to jump onto the neck of his horse, he held out his hands to catch her so that she would not hurt herself, and still the dogs kept barking. The knight cried out to Percival, saying, Sir knight, let the beast go. Do not try to hold her, for she is not your business or anyone else's. Leave her to her own destiny. Seems cruel, but okay. Well, if it's a metaphor, you can't interfere in it. Yeah, but the Vikings interfere with fate all the time. I feel like they don't succeed. That's true, that is kind of the point. Yeah. Okay, can you fight against metaphor? Is this is this what we're learning here? That you can't fight against fate, but you can fight against metaphor? I feel like metaphor is a tool of the narrative, which is impossible to fight against. That's fair enough. Like, can you fight the narrator? That's a good point. I mean, depending on your DM. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Sorry, I'm thinking of a book again. Uh, if you haven't read John Scalzi's book, Red Shirts, I highly recommend it. Ooh. Speaking of fighting against the narrative. There you go. The beast saw that she was to have no protector and headed for the cross. The young could no longer stay inside her and out they came, alive, as dogs. And they were not as gentle or as beautiful as the beast. Um, and I'm going to skip a bit, but the dogs, like, tear the beast apart and it's very Aww. gross. That's depressing. Uh, then they, the dogs run off into the woods. Then the knight and the maiden came up to where the beasts lay in pieces by the cross, and each took a share and placed it in their golden vessels. They collected the blood which lay on the ground along with the flesh, and kissed that spot and worshipped the cross, then made their way back into the forest. Percival does the same thing, 
And afterwards, a fragrance rose from that place and from the cross so sweet that none could ever equal it. Okay, so that is our little tell that this is a saint. Yes, or some kind of religious figure. It could be Jesus as a nondescript beast. I'm pretty sure that there's not a lot of imagery of Christ giving birth to anything. It's usually that he's the groom. That's true. Maybe Mary, but like, no, why would, why would anyone portray Mary as giving birth to like fiends? Yeah, I feel like that would be blasphemous. I don't actually remember. This metaphor is explained later, but I forget what the metaphor is. Oh, oh I kind of want to know. Still, that's fascinating. This would not be the first time that an animal is a saint. That's true. Saint Guinefort, or however you say that, because it's French, was a literal greyhound. Yep. Until the Catholic Church intervened and said, dogs can't be saints. Although I think there was a lot of pushback. Cause, like, Does this mean dogs can't go to heaven too? They had to rescind his sainthood? Well, you can, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong as the as the Christian in the room, but isn't the doctrine that only humans have souls? I have heard so many different arguments about this, and quite frankly, I have not like sunk my teeth into this particular debate but traditionally yes traditionally yeah, so if they don't have souls then they can't go to heaven and if they can't go to heaven then they can't be saints yes no soul no afterlife exactly which means they can't go to hell either they just yes. sort of cease to exist so you know right middle ground if you don't if you don't have something going on after you die it's hard to be a saint because like what are those relics connected to then Exactly. There's no power there. Anyway, afterwards, two priests arrive. One kneels and kisses the cross, but the other beats it with a rod while weeping. Percival asks, what the fuck? Understandable. Much like your expression is asking now. Yes. But they inform him, Sire, nothing we do is of any consequence to you, and you will not be told by us. I mean, fair enough. Mind your own business, Percival. Although in this context, I assume it means go back to FAQ Castle. Yes, absolutely. Gotta get that exposition. Later, Percival encounters the Coward Knight, who gives his usual spiel. Percival decides, this won't do, and forces the Coward Knight to ride in front of him, quote, in spite of his wishes. Oh, buddy. He doesn't deserve this. No. They proceed like this for some time, but then encounter a knight, driving two maidens in front of him, beating them with switches. Percival again asks, what the f***? Understandable. And it turns out that these are the poor knight's sisters. <gasps> they came to take up residence in that castle Gowan and Lancelot won for them, only to find there was one robber knight left. The following conversation takes place between Percival and the coward knight. I was also present for the killing of the robber knights, and I insist you give the castle to these ladies. I mean, it seems like you two have your own business, so uh, I'm, I'm just gonna go. Oh no you don't. Robber knight, I present the champion who will fight in my place. The, the what? Oh no. The robber knight beats on the coward knight like a pinata for a while, until the coward knight snaps and murderizes him. He presents the head to Percival, <laughs> who rechristens him the Bold Knight. This is my villain backstory. <laughs> it's my origin story. I love this. 
Yeah, it's a good one. It's really good. I didn't want to do this. I was trying to be a good person. And then f***ing Percival came along. I feel like that's a very good reason for becoming a villain. Yeah, interacting with Percival. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, there are... There are a few villain backstories that could start with Percival's actions, both the ones that we've seen already and ones that are to come. Teaser, Percival's status as a war criminal does not lessen. How am I not surprised? Percival now arrives at King Arthur's lands, which is not supposed to be his destination. He's supposed to be heading to the Fisher King, I believe. Yes, that sounds right. Only to find all the, quote, lowly people, unquote, in great fear and dismay. His first thought is that Arthur has died, but it turns out they're all just freaked out by this whole Dragon Knight thing. When he arrives at the court, he is greeted joyfully, but the mood is soon dampened because four more charred bodies are brought in to show the court that evening at dinner. Yes! I gotta say, there's nothing like the presentation of a dead body to, like, get the court to act. Yeah, I hope they're being brought in on platters. Ooh. Like they're part of the dinner. That would be a gruesome touch. You know, as as Megamind says, the important part of being a villain is presentation. Presentation. That's such an underrated film. I know. It's amazing. I love that film. Everyone is still discussing this. The dead bodies, not Megamind. Gowan and Lancelot continue to offer to go fight, but everyone else says, and I quote, There was no knight in the world who could vanquish such a man unless God worked a miracle, for he could throw fire and flame from his shield whenever he wished. It's like... We can't beat that shield. That shield is too good a gimmick. It's you OP, need God. man. <laughs> it's, it's OP. Follow the saints. When that maiden from the LARP with the dead knight, whom I believe we called Necra, shows up yeah. and explains that Percival owes her a vengeance quest. That's right! Because she won the tournament. Yes, he won the tournament, and supposedly the winner of the tournament was supposed to avenge this knight she had. And he just off when no one was looking like he pulled a batman and yeah and then gawain was like oh no i can't do it yeah he's like there would be no honor in me taking over someone else's quest what a so she's been looking for him this whole time and she's found him finally and she also says that hey he should be doing a vengeance anyway because the dead knight is the son of his uncle elinant of escavalon whom we have heard nothing about since he was briefly listed as one of Big Alan's dead brothers in the introduction. The following explanation is provided. Yeah, so they have this little chat. Is this true? I didn't know Elinant of Escavalon had a son. His name was Alan of Escavalon, and he was a great knight. The Maiden of the Circle of Gold loved him and had him embalmed when the Knight of the Dragon killed him. In fact, the Knight of the Dragon has killed so many of said Maiden's knights that she's offered the Circle of Gold itself as a prize for anyone who can avenge Alain. This quest would also help King Arthur, because for some reason, the whole business with Logrin the Giant has made the Knight of the Dragon hate King Arthur. Where is the Knight of the Dragon? He is on the Isle of the Elephants, which was once rich and beautiful, but which he has laid waste. He spends his time dragging knights out of the forest and killing and dismembering them in places where the Maiden of the Circle of Gold can see, because there's nothing like tormenting a woman. I like your ad-lib there. It is accurate to the genre. Absolutely. I will let the listeners guess what my ad-lib was. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, the motives of the Knight of the Dragon are never really explained. And also, even though he was called the Knight of the Burning Dragon at first, it starts being shortened to the Knight of the Dragon, and I don't know why. He didn't like writing it all out. Yeah. But he's got some connection with, like, the giants as a unit, and what exactly that is, and why he's taking vengeance for Logren is, like, not ever Well, he is a giant himself, out. is he not? It says he's, like, a f he says he's taller than other men, but only, like, by a foot. Like, he's oh. giant in, like, terms of, yeah, he is a good foot taller than any knight you have ever seen. But that's not that tall, comparatively to a giant. Yeah, so, like, we can imagine a giant, like, within the range of human possibility. Like, occasionally there are people born who reach, like, seven feet. Seven, yeah. And, like, he's probably one of those. But whether he's, like, a giant giant, like a folklore giant, is... Maybe he's, like, a like a half-sun or something. Like, he's, yeah. like, half-giant. Interesting. That's always fascinating to me when you get these, like... Like, how do the... How do the races mix and intermingle? I always get very curious about that because we do so much of it in modern D&D games like, you know, Tieflings, for instance, or, yeah. or Dragonborn. And it's like, that's not really touched on in folklore very often. It is not. Or at least in like the more classical myths and legends, you do get a lot more in like folklore, like earlier English folklore with changelings or like Grimm's Tales, stuff like that. You'll get some some stuff like that, but... Not in the older stuff. Yeah, you get people who are part troll in the Viking sagas, but I think that's, that's true. I think that's the most we ever get, and that's because it's not really clear whether troll is like genetic or just like a lifestyle choice. I love that. That should be a background. <laughs> yeah, you know, I just decided to become a troll one day. Not an internet troll. Like I take it more more to heart than that. You know, just go out and live under a bridge. Yell at people. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, that's that's on my list of dream jobs right next to Hermit. Yes. I feel like you can overlap those. That's true. Well, that's why they're, they're right next to each other. True. Very true. Kvedwulf, Aik's father, was part troll and part werewolf. Yeah. Yeah, he was so, like someone's OC. He really was. He was so cool. I know we only got like literally a werewolf. paragraph with him, but Half he's human. so cool. The best. This anyway. is my character, Nightwolf, because that's what Kvedolf means. This is my character, Nightwolf. He's a half-troll werewolf. <laughs> so OP! <laughs> like, that's, yeah, that's absolutely someone's, like, fan fiction. Oh, 100%. <laughs> but he's, you know, he's got, like, a paragraph of the entire story, so you can get away with, like, sneaking him in there. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, Percival goes off, escorted by Gowan and Lancelot. They reach the Forbidden Castle. <gasps> yes. Which is described as follows. Then they looked before them and saw a castle standing in the middle of the open meadows, surrounded by rushing rivers and rings of wall, and there within loomed great windowed halls. As they approached the castle, they saw that it was turning round faster than any wind, and above the battlements were archers of copper, which fired with such power that no armor in the world could withstand their shots. With them were live men sounding horns, horns so loud that it seemed as though the earth were quaking, and down below at the gateway were lions and bears in chains, roaring with such fury that all the forest and the valley rang. The knights drew rein and gazed at this wonder. Okay, hang on. It's spinning like a top. Okay, I was wondering about that. And it's like, it's got like ballistas that are shooting super fast arrows. Yeah, but they're, instead of just saying 
It it doesn't sound like they're like ballistas. It sounds like they're golems. Oh, that is dope. And also, it's surrounded by lions and bears. Oh my. Yes, exactly. (laughs) The maiden has some instructions. This is a direct quote. My lords, there you see the forbidden castle. Sir Garwin and you, Lancelot, draw back. Go no nearer the archers, or your death will surely come. And you, Percival, if you wish to enter the castle, give me your lance and shield. I will take them ahead as a guarantee, and you can come behind me, and conduct yourself as a good knight should, and you will pass into the castle. But your companions may as well turn back, for it is not yet time for them to enter. The only one who may proceed is he who is to conquer the demon knight, and the circle of gold, and the grail, and the false law of the castle. Which is presumably Percival. Also, yes. Demon Knight? We're going with Demon Knight now? Yeah, this is apparently the same person as the Knight of the Burning Dragon. Is he's, he's also a demon. Right on. Lancelot and Gowan are distressed by this and ask Percival to promise to meet them again without any disguise bullshit if he survives. God bless. Yeah, Percival has a nasty habit. It does not say whether Percival agrees. Good to know. Some foreshadowing here. I don't know if that's foreshadowing or not, because I I write these as I read. So occasionally, like, I just put in a note, like, he didn't technically agree. And that doesn't mean he's not going to do it. That just means that I noticed while I was reading that he didn't say That he didn't agree. I like that. I'm hoping it's foreshadowing. The maiden holds up Joseph of Arimathea's shield so the people in the castle can see who she is bringing in. Percival tries to murder the castle, and I quote... Not the people in the castle, the physical castle. The actual castle. This boy's nuts. He thrust in his spurs and his horse charged forward with all the speed it could summon towards the turning castle, and Percival struck the gate so violently with his sword that he drove it a good three fingers' lengths into a marble pillar. Okay, that's impressive. Yes. While it's turning? While it's turning, he just launches himself at it. And apparently this works. The castle stops turning, the archers stop shooting, and... All the bridges, apparently there were, this, it says, there were three bridges before the castle, which rose up as soon as he had crossed them. And Lancelot and Gowan want to go, like, follow, now that he's made it stop turning. But yes, But someone hollers from the battlements, My lords, if you come nearer, the archers will shoot, the castle will turn, and the bridges will be lowered again, which would bring you grave distress. I get that. It's like, it's a boss battle, what do you expect? Right. Your companions can't come in, it's just you. Is that how video games work? It can be, yes. <laughs> I never I never in my life expected to be the gamer part of anything, but here I am. I mean, I haven't pl- I've I don't play a lot of video games. That's so fair. I don't watch a lot of TV. I mean, I do, do, don't do much of that either. True. Mostly I do this. This is why I've got this whole yes. book covered in notes. I usually, I do play some video games, but most of it is like what I see in the work water cooler chat or what my partner plays. So I'm up to date on all of those. (laughs) Like Elden Ring just came out, which is very Dark Souls. Um, Well, it is Dark Souls. And this castle would fit right in. I will take your word for it. (laughs) 
Dark Souls is known for being extremely hard and frustrating because all the bosses are are like ridiculously hard to kill. Like you have to you have to learn their techniques over several times when you die and you just repeatedly die and grind and die and grind. For reference, the video game I've played most recently is Heroes of Might and Magic 3, which came out over 20 years ago. <laughs> God bless. I'm I play here it for on it. an emulator. <laughs> yes. Anyway, so Spinning Castle, Lancelot and Gawain are not going in. Yes. After Percival goes in, Lancelot and Gawain hear a great rejoicing. They then wander off, eventually reaching the Waste City, where Lancelot tells Gawain about his beheading game with Hydrox. That's right. Presumably, Gawain is thinking, I could do that story better. We'll see. <laughs> However, just as he finishes, the poor knight rides up with good news and bad news. <clears throat> Sire, I have obtained a delay for you in the city concerning the knight you killed until 40 days after the Grail is conquered. I had not left the castle where you took lodging, nor would I ever have done if you had not come to keep your pledge. And I shall not leave the castle again until the day I have just told you. I thank Sir Gawain and you most deeply for the horses you sent us, for they were of great use to us, and for the castle and the treasure that you gave to my sisters, who were in such grave need. But I shall never rise from the poverty in which I find myself until the hour when you return, on the day until which I have striven to wring a delay from your enemies because of the favors which you have done me. But I beg you, do not forget to return to keep your word. So basically, to sum that up, Lancelot gets a delay on the time he has to come back. But also, the poor knight can't stop being the poor knight until Lancelot comes back. I feel like there's some commentary here, but I can't tell whether it's modern or medieval. Hmm. So I'll just leave it there. Okay. Fascinating. He stays poor. Okay, all right. Lancelot and Gawain then head back to Arthur's court, and the narration follows Percival into the next chapter. And at the beginning of the next chapter, we get an explanation of uh, this turning castle nonsense. So according to Josephus, Virgil, yes, that Virgil, built the castle in such a way by his magic art when the philosophers went in search of the earthly paradise. I didn't realize Virgil was a magician. Apparently he was, question mark. There's a note here, actually, that says Virgil's device called the Salvatio Romae. I, I believe salvation the salvation of Rome. of Rome, yeah, had given him a reputation by the 13th century as a mechanical necromancer, <laughs> which is an excellent combination of words. A mechanical necromancer? Does that mean he like, is this like a warforged thing? That, like he see, creates... That's what I picture when you put those two words together. I think what the author means, or the translator rather, means is that he does black magic through machines. And thus mechanical necromancy. I love it. But yeah, I, I picture basically a Phyrexian from Magic the Gathering when someone says mechanical necromancer. Ooh, death. Yes. Yes. Like, I want to f- I want to figure out a way to do that. Like, are we talking like you put a you put a core of something or other in a skeleton, like a magic core inside a skeleton skull, and then you connect the joints with wire and stuff. And then you have bleh. A skeleton that, like, has joints? Because that always bothered me. Like, when you're reanimating the dead, like, how did the skeleton stay together? Like, is that a magical force? 
Like, it's got to be a magical I've, I've force. I've always assumed it's like ghostly ligaments and tendons. Yeah, it's got to be. But that always bothered me because I was like, eventually, wouldn't zombies just decompose? What's keeping the like? What's keeping the tendons from rotting away? Well, presumably, your conscientious necromancer would embalm them. That would make sense. I'm here for this. An embalmed warforged. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> like a bone golem kind of thing. Ooh, that's good. Yeah. Imagine you're fighting what you think is like just a, a hunk of robot metal, but it's actually like a knight, like a dead knight who's been reanimated still in his armor. So you like mm-hmm. hack into it and it still actively bleeds, but it doesn't take the damage you think it does because it's dead. Yeah, I'm definitely here for like, Something that's kind of like a warforged, but is actually a mummy, and it's like mechanical necromancy. I Whatever mechanical necromancy is, I want in. <laughs> well, apparently you talked to Virgil about that. <laughs> I didn't know Virgil was in IT. <laughs> but anyway, the rest of that sentence goes, And it was prophesied that the castle would not stop turning, until, and you may find this to be familiar, until the coming of a knight with a head of gold, the gaze of a lion, a heart of steel, the navel of a virgin girl, the <laughs> full of valor, free of all wickedness, and full of faith and belief in God. And, <laughs> and this knight mean? was to bear the shield of the good soldier who took the savior of the world from the cross, i.e. Joseph of Arimathea. I'm still stuck on navel of a virgin girl. I know. What I don't know mean? what that means. I don't like that turn of phrase. We've got to figure out what that means. I'm going to make a note of it. Oh, God, I thought you were Googling it, and I was about to go like, no! Yeah, that's probably not a good idea. (laughs) Future Mac here. Zoe did do some Googling and found a few sources that we might come back to for future discussions, but... The important bit for this question is, I think, as follows. And then according to, here we go, according to Isidore of Seville, uh, or Seville, anyway, Isidore of Seville. I always just say Seville. Yeah, I'm never sure. The navel is the source of female sexuality and sensuality. After a brief, delicately worded resume of the role of the kidneys in the production of semen, with the loins as the locus of the cause of bodily pleasure in males, he adds, just as in women, it is the navel. All right, so I'm going to assume that having the navel of a virgin girl is, like, related to Percival's asexuality. Yes, and being chaste. Yes, the final bit of the explanation of this castle is that it was prophesied that when this knight arrives, everyone there will convert from the old law to the new law. And because of this, everyone in the castle is thrilled and rejoices when Percival arrives because, quote, they had feared that they would die in sin because of their false law and would never be saved. So this is a weird thing in that apparently they all want to convert, but just haven't because it's prophesied that they won't until this guy gets here. That's so sad. It also doesn't make any sense. And I feel like is a weird way to represent conversion is, oh, they all want to be Christian. They just can't until we go there and show them. Weird. There is an idea that if you have not encountered Christianity before, then you cannot like be 
condemned or you can't be converted because you don't know about Christianity. But also then they wouldn't fear going to hell. Right. So I don't know how that adds up. Also, I'm sure the point's been made before that if not knowing about Christianity means you can't go to hell, obviously you shouldn't tell anyone about Christianity to keep people from going to hell. True. Go figure. If that was doctrine, then the church should have been an operation of extreme secrecy. <laughs> Can you imagine? Anyway, Necra encourages Percival onwards, though before leaving the castle, he is sure to hear mass. They continue on towards the Isle of the Elephants, where the Queen of the Circle of Gold has just witnessed the Knight of the Dragon kill four more of her knights. She offers to not only give Percival the Circle of Gold, which, remember, is the crown of thorns that's been decorated with gold and gems. That's right. But to convert to Christianity herself, which apparently she hasn't, even though, again, she has the crown of thorns. I mean, known relics have been in the hands of non-Christians before. Yeah, but, like, she has the whole whole thing. Like, it's her it's her whole thing. That's, yeah, that is true. It is her identifying marker. That's weird. There's so much that does not add up in this story. Yeah, but to convert to Christianity herself if he can defeat the Knight of the Dragon. Percival goes to face the Knight and Necra Scarpers. Sire, in this plane was your uncle's son killed, and I leave him here with you for I have brought him far enough. Now avenge him the best you can. I leave him and give him to you, for I have done enough to free myself of all reproach. Thanks be to f***ing God. I imagine she's very done with this quest. Incidentally, here's how the Knight of the Dragon is described. Yes. He saw the Knight of the Dragon mounted now, and he gazed at him in wonder because he looked so huge. Never had he seen a man with so great a body. And he saw the shield at his neck, great and black and ghastly. And at its center he saw the dragon's head, throwing out fire and flame with terrible force, so foul and ghastly that its stench filled the fields. The maiden retreated towards the castle, leaving the knight in the litter in the middle of the field. She just drops the dead body there. Oh, I mean, I guess there's enough dead bodies in that field anyway. An action scene commences. The fire-breathing shield burns up Percival's lance, but Percival himself is protected by Joseph of Arimathea's shield. It seems that, concealed in the boss, there are some relics of Jesus, specifically some blood and scraps of clothing, which have a protective power. Very nice. After failing to do any damage with fire or sword, the Dragon Knight spitefully turns his fiery shield on the body Necra has been lugging around, burning it to ash, and the following dialogue occurs. And these are direct quotes. The Dragon Knight declares, From burying this man, you are absolved! To which Percival responds, That grieves me indeed, but I will have revenge if it pleases God. Sire, now the disgrace will be greater and the wrong done will be deeper if you do not gain revenge. That's a baller line. Yeah. You're, you are absolved from burying this man. Right? I thought that was really good. That's, that's why I put that that's in a there. great line. Percival strikes his opponent's shield so that it splits down to the dragon's head. Fire from the shield heats his sword to red hot and Necra hollers down. By my life, sire, now your sword is as strong as his. Now we shall see what you will do. I have been told in truth that the knight can be killed only in one place and only by one blow. But alas, I cannot tell you how. 
That's so helpful, Necra. Yes, yeah, exactly. To read directly from the next sentence I wrote, this not particularly helpful advice received. Percival tries a few different blows and even cuts off the Dragon Knight's hand, but the fight continues and Percival decides to stab the dragon head straight in the mouth. Let's go. Which is why I know it's at least three-dimensional. Yes. At this point, quote, The dragon's head turned upon its lord in a rage and consumed him in flame and burned him to ashes and then vanished like a thunderbolt. All right. He cracked it. Yeah, apparently the stroke that would kill the dragon knight was into the mouth of the dragon. He is called the knight of the dragon, so... It makes sense. That's some good game design, yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think that's a good, <laughs> like... It's a good hint! Yeah, yeah, that would be good for a video game. 10 out of 10. The previous owner has written a marginal note that this is a, quote, splendid red X type fight, which is a reference I do not get. Oh, I don't know that so one. If, Hang on. Yeah. I tried Googling it. It's not helpful. There are multiple things called Red X. I would love to know what that is. I don't immediately recognize it. Yeah, if anyone has any idea. Yeah, let, let us, us know. know. Like, what what Red X is this a type of fight relating to? Maybe it's a that type a bad of technique in, in games. Anyway, there is much rejoicing, and Percival is treated for a shoulder wound he received that is, quote, burned down to the bone. Ugh. The Queen of the Circle of Gold informs Percival that it had been prophesied that the knight with the head of gold would save them, and she places the Circle of Gold on his head. She then presents him with the sword and wishes that all who would not be converted to Christianity be slain by said sword. Oh my gosh, we're doing this again? Yep. The Queen is then immediately baptized, followed by all the rest in her castle, presumably under threat of a good swording by Percival. We are informed that she takes the baptismal name Eliza, and, quote, her body still lies in the Kingdom of Ireland, where it is greatly honored. So this is going on in Ireland, is it? Well, this is going on in the Isle of the Elephants, which I assume is not Ireland, unless there's something going on that I don't know about Ireland and elephants. I can't talk about that. <laughs> I'm just going to leave that there. <laughs> Let everyone wonder. Percival remains at her castle to recover, and news passes everywhere that the Knight of the Dragon has been killed by the Knight of the Circle of Gold. Though, once more, nobody knows that this knight is Percival. Great. He's got so many names. Yes. Yes, he does. I don't have anything to add to that. It's just, yeah. Eventually he departs, leaving behind the Circle of Gold, since, we are told, quote, he had no idea which way he would go. Presumably the circle is safest where it is. You know, I I like that. Yeah, I think it's the right choice. Yes. He did drop off that dog that he got from King Arthur's court too. So he's yeah. not he's not dragging too many people into his, you know, nefarious war crimes. Yes, which is always I guess better than the alternative. True. Percival then arrives at another place that the text thinks needs a good Percival style Christianizing as follows. Rip. The story tells us that he rode on until he came one day to the castle of the Copper Tower, where there dwelt many people who worshipped the Tower of Copper and believed in no other god. The Copper Tower was in the middle of the castle, standing on four columns of copper. Copper, 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 copper. <laughs> and at all hours of the day, it let out such terrible roars that it could be heard for a league around. And there was an evil spirit within who gave the people answers to whatever they wished to know. 
I, I understand why they're worshipping it. That, that makes sense. Yeah, like that tracks. At the gateway, there were two men made by the art of sorcery, holding two great iron hammers which they drove and dashed together with such fury that nothing in all the world could pass between them without being completely destroyed. But everywhere else, the castle was walled and barred, making entry impossible. Like homunculi? Yeah, or golems or something. Nice! And they just stand there, bashing their hammers together in front of the only entrance. <laughs> Again! This guy would have been a great DM. Yeah. Like, there, it just keeps going. Plot? What plot? We don't need a plot. He'll tie it in later. That is definitely a quality of this. It's just like, oh, there's just stuff. Sometimes there's just stuff. Don't worry about it. We'll figure it out. <laughs> so Percival approaches the castle, and a voice booms out from above the gate, saying that so good a knight as he need not fear the copper men. Apparently the homunculi slash golems are also made of copper. With iron hammers. So he passes through. Handy. Good to know. Yeah, he's just using his protagonist abilities to walk through this obstacle. <laughs> Inside, everyone is at worship around the tower. They stare as he enters, but do not interrupt their worship to address him. We also get the following information. 1. They are the only ones in the world of this, quote, evil faith, unquote. 2. They are unused to fighting, because no one can enter or leave the castle, so they have never needed to fight. 3. The demon they worship provides them with plenty, and they, quote, want for nothing, unquote. Sounds like a pretty good life, so... Yeah. Why is this a demon and not, like, a saint? I know, right? This could very easily have been a saint. That, that's that's why I, I, like, put quotes around evil faith, because I'm like, they're not hurting anyone. They're not doing anything. They're hanging out. But then again, I think that a lot of hardline Christians would say that, like, yeah, but they're worshipping a demon, and that's oh, automatically 100%. evil. 100%. Even if this demon is doing nice things... That's bizarre. It must be for evil purposes, I suppose. See, this is when I, when I don't understand the difference between, like, people worshipping saints and people worshipping demons. Like, the line gets pretty thin. But, you know, maybe I'm a heretic. Yeah. Maybe you are. <laughs> I can't speak to that. <laughs> what it kind of reminds me of is, in the modern day, there are a lot of people out there who are, like, very, very skeptical of any, like, secular charities or secular movements towards treating people better because they're like, well, if it didn't come from God, it might be de demons. That's bizarre. Like, how jacked up must your faith be if you think that any act of kindness must come either from faith or a demon? Well, look, that's how Satan gets you. By being nice? Yes. That explains why so many traditional Christians are such Karens. Yeah, it really does, actually. <sighs> That's so gross. Until someone broke that down for me, I did not get why there was so much, like, religious pushback to a lot of, like, social justice movements. But then someone was like, oh, no, it's because it's 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 Satan being sneaky. Oh. Yep. yep. Okay, I see it. Yep. And it's, oh, gosh. <sighs> I do not ascribe to whatever form of... And here's the thing to me, is that you can't even call that doctrine because it's not doctrine. At that point, you just have to call it tradition. And it's like, mm -hmm. that's not yeah, faith. That's, not, that's not doctrine. That's that's just you doing your thing because your parents have done that thing because your parents had done that thing, blah, blah, blah. It's like, start thinking critically about your faith. Yeah, I think that's generally good advice, honestly. Yeah, about whatever you believe. 
Yeah. yeah. Think critically about your beliefs. Anyway, now that we've got ex- this explained, Percival rounds them all up at sword point. I hate this man. You're gonna hate him more. Oh, great. And, and the voice informs him that he should drive them out through the gates to see, quote, who would believe in God and who would not. Here's how that goes. Wait, wait, wait. The demon voice? No. The voice that told him to come in, which I guess is separate. I think that's supposed to be the voice of God. I don't know about that, but okay. (laughs) The narrator's voice. Anyway, here's how that goes. And I'm going to read a whole thing, but I'm expecting there to be like at least a couple moments where you cut in. So feel free. He drove them out through the gateway where the terrible statues were striking their hammers of iron. And of 1,500, only 13 remained who did not have their brains beaten out by the hammers. No! This This is what I meant when I said there were more war crimes coming. Like, I think that was technically a genocide. So Percival kill count is like, what? Out of 1,500, there's 13. (laughs) So like... His, his kill count is basically 1,500 at this point with everybody else yeah. he's killed. Yeah, I actually have a note at the bottom of this page. Do we add 1,487 to Percival's kill count? We have to! So yeah. Percival kill count, 1,502. I hate him so 15. much. What? Uh, wow, okay. But those 13 came to believe firmly in our Lord. Oh, so it's okay then. F*** you, Percival. <laughs> the evil spirit that dwelt in the Copper Tower burst out like a thunderbolt, and the tower came crumbling down in ruins. Nothing of it remained. That's pretty cool. That is pretty cool. Then the 13 survivors sent for a hermit from the forest and had themselves raised up and baptized. And the bodies of the pagans were cast into a stream called the River of Hell, which flows into the sea. So say most of those who have seen it, and at its estuary the sea is terrible and perilous indeed, and hardly any ship passes that way without floundering. And then those people go to the volcano from Brendan's journey, and then they go up into the volcano, and that's hell. Yes, that is exactly (laughs) how that works. We're mapping out the medieval world. You can find hell. It's somewhere in the Atlantic. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) It's in Jersey. You know, you're probably right. (laughs) New Jersey, that is. Old Jersey is probably fine. Oh, Jersey's beautiful as an island. I had a roommate who lived there. Apparently Henry Cavill lives there. I know that name. That's um, that's the star of The Witcher, right? Yes, it is. He plays Geralt? Mm-hmm. All right, I knew a thing. Apparently he's got a really tiny dog, which I think is really cute because he's a big man. (laughs) But anyway, that's just what my flatmate told me. And we get an epilogue for these guys also. Oh, good. They deserve one. Josephus tells us that the man who baptized these 13 was named Dennis. It's Dennis with one N, but... Okay. And that their castle was called the Trial Castle. They stayed there until the new law was firmly established and led good lives indeed, and no one could go inside to join them without being killed or cut to pieces unless he believed staunchly in God. So apparently they turn this castle into like a test of faith where they're all like hermiting inside of it and people want to come in there and join them. But if they don't believe strongly enough, they get hammered. (laughs) I don't like it. It's hilarious, but it's really, really tragic. 
When the people of all those isles had come to a firm belief, the thirteen men of the castle went out and set up hermitages throughout the forests to gain forgiveness for having upheld the false law and to win the love of the savior of the world. And not because maybe instead of going out and doing the hermitages in the first place, no, they had to do the, the trial first. Really. Apparently God willed it. You know, you can get a, get away with a lot by saying that and I don't like it. <laughs> I don't like it. Well, I guess we can only say whatever that voice was talking to Percival willed it. So it may be that the voices in Percival's head will it. You know, I would believe that more readily, but hey, whatever the narrator wants us to believe, I guess. Yeah. That's bizarre. That's like actually very strange. The next section starts as follows. I, I, I want to quote this directly again because... I think it really kind of gives us a sense of how the author wants us to take all this. Oh boy. Percival, as you have heard, was a soldier of our Lord, and God was showing him plainly that he loved his chivalry. You know, I feel like this is more the author trying to feel better about himself and what he did during the Crusades. Yes, I would say that this is likely. That's rough. As we've mentioned before, the Albigensian Crusades are... The origin of the uh, kill them all, let God sort them out line. And that is literally what just happened, is God sorted them out. I don't, ah, uh, mm, that's amazing. Like, in the sense that you can, you can see that mindset propagate through fiction, that's mm -hmm. amazing. Be critical of what you read, please. Just blanket statement. I don't care what you're reading, whether it's news or fiction or whatever, because... I feel like this is, it goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway. There is no such thing as objectivity in any piece of media that you read or watch or listen to or mm -hmm. whatever. I can definitely see this event as being inspired by possibly that the same event that inspired the, that, uh, that line. Because what it was, was they were besieging a city, which they knew contained many, quote, heretics, unquote. And they were like, how do we separate the heretics from the righteous? And that was the answer is just kill everyone and God will know his own. And you can kind of see that maybe someone who is involved in that is like fantasizing. What if there were like these magic iron yeah. hammers that would just squish only the heretics and let the righteous out? Yeah. And of course, he's like, no, clearly they were on there would only be a few righteous people in there. Right. Like we obviously. mostly killed sinners. Obviously. Of course. But also, geez, that's brutal. Yeah, so... Yeah, be critical about what you read. There's a connection. Percival then arrives back at Pellis's hermitage, and it turns out Pellis also has the FAQ power, so we get some more metaphors. I'm not going to read them out again. Okay, so Pellis is the brother of the Fisher King. Yes. Okay, cool. Just wanted to make sure. I was like, I thought he was dead! Uh, I'm not going to read them out again, so here are the bullet points. Here the Yelping go. Beast... With twelve young, represented God. That's what it was. Represented God and the twelve tribes of Israel. Oh, that makes more sense. The priest who beat the cross did so because the cross caused Jesus pain. Oh, okay. It doesn't have agency, bro. It's wood. The death of the knight of the dragon represents how demons torment each other in hell. Because the shield attacked him. Oh, that makes, like, oh, that makes sense. like, oh, demons don't have solidarity. <laughs> no, I want to make a union joke. <laughs> anyway the turning castle and the copper tower aren't metaphors but percival is told that he was the only knight k 
capital G good TM enough to conquer them. Screw you, FAQ guy. <laughs> good enough. Good enough, my ass. That censor bleep is going to get some overtime work in this episode. I apologize. I will throw no, it down. No, it's half me. <laughs> These are just, like, the more we get into this, the more ridiculous, you know, Percival gets. Ah, oh, all right. Okay. Pelis then encourages Percival to go conquer the King of Castle Mortal and liberate the castle of the Fisher King, which is what he was supposed to be doing all this time anyway. Yes. He also has some thoughts on this matter in general and advice for how to achieve this goal. I don't think Percival's going to take any of it, but let's let's hear it. Well, it's it's kind of a walkthrough for the uh, King of Castle Mortal level. Oh, nice! Fair nephew, it is only right that you should go, for he fell into Langor because of you. But if you had then returned, he would have been healed. So say most people. I do not know for certain, but I believe that God wanted him to languish and die. For if God's will had been otherwise, you would have asked the question. But God wished it to be thus, and we must thank him and praise him for whatever he sends us. For he has prepared every man's future. I just kept that in because I like the idea that like, okay, Percival, you made a mistake, but obviously God wanted you to make the mistake. I understand that logic from a faith perspective, especially because it's like your mistakes will have consequences and God turns all things for good. So your mistakes can have positive outcomes, even though there are negative consequences to those mistakes. Yeah, I just think it makes narrative difficult when you have to factor in, like, the direct hand of an omniscient being. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Maybe that's why I don't like doing games where the gods get directly involved. I can't stand those. Like, really, really high-level games, I'm like, ugh, it's so boring. Because once you get the gods involved, it's just like, okay, lightning, do yes, do the thing, fight the god. Okay, Tiamat's destroyed. I don't know. Maybe I'm being boring about it, but I don't like high-level campaigns. I personally prefer ones that at least start at level one. Yeah, yeah. You have to Work earn your it. way up. I have here a mule, very white and very old, and you shall take her with you. Presumably this is the mule we were introduced to before, who I think belonged to Joseph of Arimathea or was at the crucifixion or yeah, something. Yeah, that's right. She will follow you most willingly, and you shall carry a banner, for the strength of God is much greater than your own. Twenty-seven knights guard the nine bridges, all picked and tested men of great courage. And no one should believe that any knight could overcome so many unless our Lord worked a miracle. And I beg you, always be mindful of God and his sweet mother. And when you are hard-pressed, mount the mule and take up the banner, and the strength of your enemies will diminish. For nothing confounds the enemy so swiftly as the power of God. It is well known that you are the finest knight in the world, but do not be too confident of your strength and chivalry against so many knights, for you would not be able to withstand them. I do like that. This is a good walkthrough. He continues. Oh, here we go. There are two lions at the gateway. One is red and the other is white. Trust in the white one, for he is on God's side. I know where this comes from! Oh, yeah. <laughs> it does definitely sound a lot like that bit with uh, Merlin and the dragons, doesn't it? Yes, 100%. Because this, this occurs in Geoffrey of Monmouth, History of the Kings of Britain. And it also occurs in the Mabinogian, which is what... Jeffrey is pulling from and historically this can be like oh England versus Wales or it can be the Anglo-Saxons versus you know the Britons or you know whatever whatever or the Normans or basically my point is is you can take the red and the white and attach it to whatever the politics are of the day and mm -hmm. you defeat the bad guy in the end 
But yes, this is where the red and the white is coming from. It's not coming out of nowhere. This is no. based, this is essentially the English cross, right? That's the English cross colors. Red and white, yeah. Yeah, which technically should be Welsh, but that's where it comes from. Anyway. The Welsh flag is better anyway. Oh, for sure. It's got a dragon on it, which is where that dragon comes from. Anyway, I will. Yes. Okay. I got my dragons in. I'm good. Trust in the white one, for he is on God's side, and look to him whenever your strength tires, and he will look at you likewise, and you will know his mind straight away, or straightway, as the text keeps saying, by the will and pleasure of our Lord. Do what you see in him, for he will think nothing but good, and you will not otherwise succeed in conquering the nine bridges. So he's like, okay, there's a red lion and a white lion. Uh The white lion is on God's side and can communicate with you telepathically. Do what he says. Understood. Sounds pretty cool. So that's the end of the walkthrough. Good to know. Percival heads off and meets a hermit who is fleeing the land of the Fisher King due to the anti-Christian policies of the King of Castle Mortal. This hermit leads him to eleven more, including Joseas, and Percival persuades them to travel with him. They encounter another tomb which cannot be opened, etc., etc. Percival opens it. It's the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, and everyone (gasps) is thrilled by the omen. The man himself! Percival then fights his way past two bridges, killing five knights. Percival, kill count, 1,507. I'm really glad we started doing this because I, like, for once, we do get the actual scope of how ridiculous the kill counts are for any of Like, can you imagine if you went through a video game or your TTRPG game and you counted up how many people you actually killed? It would be, like, a stupid number. It would. So I'm glad we're doing it for this text because it never changes. Joseas discards his hermit's cloak and kills a sixth. He is no longer a hermit. He's renounced his vow of pacifism. Yes, indeed. Percival then reads The Lion's Mind, and he learns that he has to carry the banner and ride on the mule in order to overcome the knights on the next bridge. You can use the tutorial menu at any time. Much like that, yes. (laughs) So, quote, Percival went to his mule, which bore the mark of a red cross on her forehead, and mounted, and took up the banner, and clutched his drawn sword. And when the white lion saw him returning, it broke from its chains, and ran between the knights to the bridge that had been raised, and lowered it straight away. Some lion. That's cool. Very useful lion. It is God's lion, so you know. Absolutely. Percival kills one more knight, then a bunch surrender, and he decides that's bullshit. So, quote, Oh no. Percival thought to himself that the power of God was great indeed, but that a knight who had chivalry and strength in him should put his own strength to the test for God. No, no. So he rolls up the banner because that's what's frightening them into surrendering and kills all three of the knights at the next bridge. Yeah, because he's such a good knight. Oh, this is too OP. I'm going to run it the old fashioned way. (laughs) What a What is it? Percival kill count 1,511. Oh my gosh. The knights at the next two bridges surrender from fear, which pisses off the red lion, but the white lion tears the red lion to pieces. Oh. We then have another leonine mind meld. Okay. Quote, Then it rose up on its hind legs and looked at Percival, and Percival gazed back and saw that the lion was thinking that the knights who guarded the last bridges would be harder to conquer than the others, and would never be destroyed save by the will of God and by the lion himself. 
and that Percival should not befriend them, no matter what they might promise, for they were traitors. He should go and mount the white mule, for she was a creature of God, and Joseas should carry the banner, and all the hermits, who were worthy men indeed, should advance at their head to dismay the treacherous king, and when the castle was conquered, then his end would be near. The knights do try to surrender, but Percival attacks anyway. He briefly hesitates when they don't even fight back, but the lion doesn't, quote, but the lion had no such contempt and leapt at them and killed them and devoured them and then flung their limbs and bodies into the river. Oh my. Yes, that's what God wants him to do. Clearly. Percival left the lion to deal with them and was most pleased with what he saw him do. Never had he seen a beast whom he loved so dearly. So the lion is like butchering these, <laughs> these knights by the will of God. And Percival's like, this is the best animal ever. I love this animal. So much better than that stupid dog. Wow. At this point, to everyone's surprise, the king of Castle Mortal climbs to the highest part of the walls, stabs himself with his sword, and plunges into the moat. I feel like that's a better way than, you know, being eaten by a lion. That's just... Yeah, or whatever Percival would do to him. Yeah, for real. I don't blame him. The court of the Fisher King returns to the castle, because the king of Castle Mortal is dead, the castle has been reconquered. There was much rejoicing. Yes, of course. But as for Percival, quote... The good knight went out once more to scour the land where the new law was being neglected. He killed all those who would not believe in it. Percival kill count question mark. Yeah, for real. And the country was ruled and protected by him, and the law of our lord exalted by his strength and valor. Uh, questionable, but all right. Yeah. The branch concludes by telling us that the Fisher King gets a very nice tomb. Oh, that's good. Okay. And that is... The end of Branch 18, which means it's time for us to do our segments. Let's go. What say you? I love the tournament. That's just great. Gawain's line when he's like, oh, I can't do that. I won't get any honor from it. It's fantastic. Yeah. I was looking at the same dialogue for my favorite bit. Yeah, I think that conversation between Gowan and the Maiden is the best Absolutely. Dialogue. It's so stupid. It also includes Gowan's line, I would gladly suffer more of his blows just to be with him. That's right! Oh my gosh. So yeah, that post-tournament conversation is the best dialogue. 100%. I will say that. 100%. All these, all these Percival simps, come on. Yes. Best death. <laughs> I feel like that almost doesn't have a... Like, it's gotta be the Lord of the Fins, right? Drowned in the blood of his own men. Yeah, that's that's brutal. Like, the Smashing Hammers is, is gruesome, but insofar as, like, terrible ways to die, but also great ways to send a message, you dig a pit in the middle of the court, you kill a bunch of the guy's men so that it fills it up, tie the guy upside down, and drown him in his men's blood. Yeah, that is a dramatic way to execute something. That is nasty. Like, I, I would say that, yeah, that's gotta be the best death. Oh, 100%. The stuff at the Copper Tower is more horrifying, but only because of the scale. Yeah, more horrifying, but not as, not quite as gross. Like, just, mm. Favorite mythical critter. We do have an entry for the bestiary, but unfortunately we, do. we don't get a lot of description for what it is. 
It, well, it's a white beast that's really pretty that has yes, and it's 12 screaming Bigger babies. than a hare, but smaller than a fox. Yeah, with screaming dogs inside of it. Yes. Ugh. Whatever that is. All right. D&D game? I mean, where to begin? Like, first off, spinning tower. Yeah. Pretty that dope. That whole thing. That's really good. I am digging that. I kind of like the idea of, like, Necra. Yeah. Who's like, I want revenge on this dead guy. And she just drags his body everywhere. Yeah, I was just thinking that that might be a great NPC to encounter, especially the part where like she shows up to a tournament and goes like, the best knight here must avenge this this knight I've brought with me so that it's all tied up in honor and stuff. Yes, 100%. I like that. Okay, obviously we need to include the shield. Yes, the shield of the burning dragon needs to obviously. be in there. That is very d and I like Dindrain as a character. I think she needs to be in here. Just wandering around looking for someone to help her mother? I think so, but, well, I guess, I guess in a greater sense, having plucky female characters who are not, like, quote-unquote, strong female characters TM. And you right. can use Dindrain as an example of someone who's like, it is not my job to be a knight, but I need a knight, and my brother's useless. So I'm here. Yeah. I just, yeah, I, I just like, like that, that idea. Of a useless brother knight and plucky young woman off to find someone to do the job. I'd also like to uh, suggest including in, in any D&D game some of the kind of conventions of the genre. Mm-hmm. Like you might have to make a special setting or a special rule set to deal with this. But I definitely like the idea of like knights can't recognize each other except by their shields. I like that. And they switch their shields around so that whenever they're in disguise. Yes, 100%. And also, I've just got this, whenever they're traveling around, I've got this vision of, a quote, setting, unquote. Well, I guess not necessarily. An unmapped setting. I've got this vision of an unmapped setting where instead of there being like a everything having a specific location. Someone's just rolling on a random table for whatever place you end up staying in that night. Ooh, that's good. Like random hermitage. Like half the time random it's just like castle. random hermitage. But like other times it's like specific places or it's like, this is not just a- any hermitage. This is Joseas's hermitage. Or sometimes this is the castle of the whatever, or this is the uh, house of the maiden of the circle of gold. Or Yes. And like, Nothing has a set location. It just is all kind of moving around in this forest because the forest obeys principles of narrative and not of geography. I like that. A forest of narrative. Ooh, that's good. It's That's very liminal. It's a very liminal space. It is a bit, yeah. So as long as you can get your players to go along with that idea and not like... Because some players love seeing a map and I 100% get that because maps yeah. are amazing. I love having a map. But also, I just love the sheer idea of like, where will we end up? Who knows? Yeah, I feel like this could even function within a map like where you, where you have like the rest of the world all, all hex mapped out and mm. then like there's this one blotch that's just like the forest of narrative and when you're in the forest of narrative, 
Who knows? You just yeah. Who knows? Who knows? Because it doesn't seem like places have any relation to each other in this. Uh-uh. You just go into the forest and you stumble across places. Yeah. All of a sudden, like you're in Ireland. Oh, now we're in Wales. Now we're in France. Who knows where we are? Now we're in the Fisher King's castle, which is under the water? Question mark. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. It's just they're just places, but they're not located anywhere. I like it. If I you like know it. what I mean. Definitely. All right, what else have we got? Oh, I like having the idea of like knights simping for each other. Yes, like definitely. fan clubs, <laughs> groupies. Groupies? Did you say? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, there is an obvious thing that we left out uh, that we saw last time: the uh, robber knight stronghold, which I referred to as a D and D set piece. Yes. Last episode. One hundred percent. Yeah, you got the maiden who's tricking them. It's an underground lair. They can't get into the forest otherwise. It's perfect. Yeah, the whole thing you can borrow directly. absolutely. Also the setting of the Perilous Cemetery from last time. I love that cemetery. Yes, I'm here for it. I would love a way to lift that curse. I think it'd be really fun if it were a liftable curse and not just like a thing that happens. Yes, yes. Uh, For anyone who doesn't remember... Because I don't think I'm going to include the details in the previously on. The Perilous Cemetery is this cemetery where all the knights who died in the forest, but were like up on their sacraments and whatnot, are buried. Mm-hmm. And all the knights who died in the forest and weren't up on their sacraments are like haunting the outside of the cemetery. Trying to get other. in because they can't touch holy ground. Yeah, they're like all, it says they're all black, which I choose to interpret as they're basically these shadow creatures and it says they have flaming swords i love that like they could be dressed in black but like shadowy flame things is so much cooler yeah yeah they they could be just wearing black armor but i choose to believe that they're shadows all right anything else or have we exhausted our list i will say i will say let your players fail So, for instance, Mm -hmm. if Percival was a player character in this situation and he delayed long enough on the quest, the Fisher King dies. Okay, cool. Why don't you turn that into a plot moment? How can he redeem himself? What else can he do? Like, let, let your players have consequences. That makes the game more real for them. And it gets them invested. Because if they're invincible in everything they do, especially if they have a kill count of over 1,500, then you're going to need some way to make it real. It is a good thing to take from this text that your players will fail. Even if they are like the the great and noble good knight TM, mm-hmm. like they screw up. They're not, Percival didn't go back to the Fisher King when he could have and just fixed everything then. And as a result, the guy's dead now. Yeah. And then, then I will say he has an entire quest to now redeem the castle and lift the curse off of the castle and kill the king of Castle Mortal. So you have a whole new quest line. Which is much better than just letting your players off the hook. Absolutely. I think that some of the like random NPC uh, encounters in here are also worth throwing at your players. Like the bit where Lancelot comes across like this knight who's being followed by a maiden begging him to marry her and they get have this whole backstory yes. about like, oh, he tricked me into eloping and then it turns out that it was all just to make me lose my honor, but I actually still want to marry him. Like He's already got a girlfriend of, and then she gets pissed. I like that. Yeah, that Unintended kind of like, consequences. Complicated social situation, like throw that at your players and make them try to sort it out. Absolutely. And then, oh gosh, there was a, there was another one. Oh yes, 
the coward knight turning into the bold knight. I love doing this to players where um, the very specific one that comes to mind. I don't I don't know if you were there for this one in particular, but um, I have this little shopkeep kid. And if the players are nice to him, he becomes an ally and he can help them. Da 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 da. But if they're an ass to him, later on it comes back to bite them in the butt because he realizes, like, he he glorifies heroes. But if you make fun of him, later when he, like, realizes he actually has magical powers, he turns into a villain. And so you have to deal with that. And it's like, these are the consequences of your actions, just in case you thought that life didn't go on outside of where you were in the game. Oh, no, things happen. So I love doing that. So I love the idea of the coward knight either becoming emboldened in a good way or shamed into getting into a fight so badly that even though Percival calls him the bold knight, he ends up becoming a bad guy. Ooh. Yeah, that is good. I love that idea. I think it's a fun way to subvert expectations and also enforce consequences. Again, I just like consequences. Well, yes. (laughs) Players should have more consequences. I feel like we let them off the hook too easy because we're like, no, we just want to hit the narrative beats. Like that. Like, yeah. Narrative beats, write a book. Yeah, come on, come on. Also, without consequences, you can't have a narrative. Yeah. In my opinion, I'm sure somebody can prove me wrong. You know, there has to be room for the players to fail mm-hmm. and for them to not reach the narrative beats you have planned out. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Alrighty. Omitatus. Who shall we bring in to a party? Not Percival. No, not Percival. I want Dindrain. See, I want to check on who we included last time, but I don't think we wrote that we wrote that down. Mm-mm. I mean, I feel like the solid ones here are going to be Lancelot, Gawain, Dindrain. Who else? Maybe the poor knight? I was thinking maybe Joseas, too. Ooh, I like Joseas. That's good. That's good. I would say Necra, but she's got her own quest. She's a little busy. Mm-hmm. She's got her own stuff going on. Yeah. I think that about covers it. All right. The Dungeon Master's Dictionary. Okay, terminology that we can use here. Oh, dear. There's not too much except for the names. We have really good place names. We have really good people names. Like, what was the guy from, like, the elephant guy? Eliant of Escavalon. Yeah, a lot of Percival's uncles have really great names. So cool. And, okay, Knight of the Dragon, Lady of the Circle of Gold. These These practically write themselves. Yeah, if you use this text for nothing else, you should definitely mine it for names. 100%. Also... Forbidden Castle. There's you want your players to go someplace, name it the Forbidden Castle. I'm sorry. If if Tolkien can get away with calling his mountain Mount Doom, even when it had like a proper elvish name, you can call a place the Forbidden Castle. Or famously in in Valinor there was a great mountain called Mount Tuna. Oh gosh. And that is the proper elvish name. It yeah. Yes it is. God bless Tolkien and his weird semiotics. I guess that that's not even semiotics, it's just linguistics. Yeah, uh, he just didn't think that of the fish. It meant, so, it meant what it meant in, his, in Elvish, and he was like, ah. Whatever. No one, no one caught it in time. <laughs> I feel like he would be enough of a stickler to just, to be like, no, this is the Elvish syntax. Yeah, he might just say like, no, I can't change it. Yeah, it's, that's what it is. It's correct in Elvish. Yeah, because we have words like that. 
If you insist on reading it as the fish, that's your problem. I'm not seeing any other names in the slides that are super interesting. No, but I will compile another list and uh, put it up on the blog for anyone who wants to try and get so and steal some of the names from this. They're great. I love these names. And it's so handy to just have a list on hand when you're DMing. So you're not repeating yeah. names. You can pick different names, like ethnically different names. It's very nice. <laughs> street smarts. Okay, street smarts. What are we learning today? Other than like, maybe don't commit genocide. Like, that's a good overall lesson, point blank. Yeah, whatever Percival's got going on, just steer clear, mm -hmm. I would say. Mm -hmm. Other things we've learned in the past few chapters, it's really easy to lie to knights about who you are. They're very gullible. Can't see through the helmet. Also, maybe be careful before getting into people's affairs, especially if it's like romance stuff, because we've already had one bad breakup that Lancelot had to fix. And now we've got another one with the girl being tricked by guy who and he's already got a boo and then you got to get involved. And then, you know, when you marry them, then she gets upset and blah, 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 you know. Yeah, it's just a bad idea. So, just stay yeah, out of just it. Just stay out of it, man. It doesn't add to your honor if you take on someone else's quest, but you should still do it anyway, because otherwise you look like a d Which I think you would still gain marginal honor. It's like getting an assist in an FPS. You may not get the kill, but you still get points for helping. I think I understood that one. <laughs> see, now I like going through and throwing them in there just to see if you're going to get it. Okay, yeah, no, I know what that means. I, know <laughs> what that means. I, got, I got you. It's a first-person shooter. I understand. Yeah, nicely done. See, and then, and then like, uh, my brother and, and his friends will throw around terms like, oh, yeah, you know, it's like, go mid or something. And I'm like... I don't understand what these terms mean, but anyone who plays League of Legends does. But they have a whole lexicon. It's very impressive. <laughs> I mean, everybody's got a lexicon for whatever group you're in. Everything that reminds me of, like, D&D &D power gamers kind of puts me off. That's fair. That's understandable. Whenever people are talking about, like, optimizing their character, I'm like, yeah, no. And I'm like, I know that's the normal thing to do in video games, but I always make the connection. And, oh, I can't I stand optimization. Recoil. No, I'm here for the narrative. Are you kidding me? If if there's a story mode, I'm playing it. <laughs> anyway, shall we move forward? Best moment. Oh my gosh. I don't really want to overlap with the tournament, even though I really like the tournament. I really like the weirdness of Dindrane showing up and then Percival showing up at King Arthur's castle and it being like a switcheroo. Yes. Like they're passing each other by and they're just narrowly missing each other. And King Arthur's like, I'm not going to tell them. <laughs> yeah. You know what? I think the best moment is like right is moving off of that, like big description of this, like mysterious ship coming up and the good knight disembarking and taking the shield and, and the dog and comes heading up off. and then like a paragraph later, Dendrain is like, what do you mean? He was already here. What the f man? You're supposed to tell me. Because she got mad at Arthur, too. Yeah, she did. Which was Rightfully. great. I love that. Yeah, definitely best moment. Yeah, that is the best moment. The court. You get to pick first. Oh, my and gosh. We've already, out, we've already ruled out Lancelot and Gowan because we've already got them. Yes. We got them last time around. All right. Okay. 
there's some really cool people here, but I like Din Drain just for her attitude, so I'm picking her. Yeah, I knew you were going to go. I there. like her. I know I've named her like three times and she's not even in this section. I just think she's neat. <laughs> Let's see. And neither one of us picked Clamidaz, right? Because he was such a little ass. Yeah, well, last time we had Lancelot and Gowan. That's right. And it's like, those are the obvious first picks. 100%. That says this is true. I think I'm going to take Joseus. Nice. The former hermit. Yes, the former hermit, who is apparently a serious danger with a sword. I feel like most people can be. Yes. Whether or not it's purely a danger to themselves is a different matter. Final rating. Oh gosh. This one was good. I still love Perilous Fels. I love it for how weird of a text it is. I will say it is a lengthy text. This section was pretty long. Because we had to break it up more intense. than we thought. Yeah, we keep having to do that. And then I feel like you're going to be a better a better gauge of how to rate this because you actually had to go through it. So I don't have the disadvantage of like finding all the paragraphs that aren't interesting and slogging through it. Because that is one of the rougher parts about being a medievalist is some of, the, some of it is so entertaining and then other parts of it is just so hard to get through. I will say there are very few nothing paragraphs. It actually is work to boil it down because most of the, there's something, there's always something going there's on. There's always. I think because it has retained its sheer wackiness and we even had greater levels of D&D potential here, I'm going to give it at least an eight. I'm going to give it a nine because, again, I enjoy it. I think there's just so much bizarre crap going on that it deserves it. I'm only knocking off one point because I think it's creepy how church militant it gets. I was going to say, I'm that part got a little bit annoying for this section in particular. Because it's just like, dude, lay off a little bit. We get it. We get it. God is very prevalent in this text. But why are you so angry about it all the yeah. time? Exactly. That's that's my only like complaint with this text is its insistence on like we must convert the heathens and punish the heretics and like everything else you've got going on is fun. That's yeah. just rough. Yeah, that's just nasty. All right. Welcome to the Leech's Corner. All right. What is our section that we would like to do? This week, we've got plants, elements, trees, stones, fish, birds, animals, reptiles, metals. Uh, how about metals? I'm curious about metals. All right, metals. So first off, she starts all of this by saying like how the metals were created, and then she goes into each one. So okay. metals were created in the beginning of the world. So ba -ba -da -ba -da, the water is poured across the earth and strengthened it, lest it break apart. And where the fiery power that flows in water penetrated the earth, the fire of the water transformed the earth into gold. Where the purity of the flooding water penetrated the earth, that purity transformed itself in the earth, which it suffused into silver. Where the fluctuation of the water penetrated the earth, moved by the wind, it transfused blah, 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 into steel and iron. Therefore, iron and steel are stronger than other metals, just as the fluctuation of water moved by winds is stronger than that moved by calm breezes. And just as the Spirit of the Lord made the waters flood, so it also vivified the human being and gave plants, trees, and stones their vitality. Interesting. She's, right. she's not I, too far off, which is pretty cool. 
I definitely like the um, the attempt to explain the origins of these different metals via like medieval science. Yeah, absolutely. Especially like how they got into the earth that way. Yeah. Although that that, of course, raises the question, where did all the other metals come from? Because that was only three. Okay, the ones that we have here are gold, silver, lead, tin. Well, it's not on the list. Mm -hmm. Tin, copper, brass, iron, and steel. So I can go through all of them, or we could just do... Good. Yeah. Yeah, probably. I'm impressed that of all of those, only two are alloys. Like, she actually did a pretty good job sorting out which were fundamental elements. Mm Mm-hmm. All right, so... Gold is hot. Its nature is somewhat like the sun's. It is almost like the element air. A person who has gout should take gold, cook it so there is no dirt in it. I'm assuming just wash it in hot water, probably. I thought it meant cook it, like melt it down to get out, just get impurities out. I don't know how much you could do that as like a regular person. Yeah. But anyway... True. After you wash it or cook it or whatever, reduce it to a powder. He should take half a handful of fine flour and knead it with water. He should then add this paste, a half penny weight of the gold powder, and eat it in the morning before breakfast. On the next day, he should again make the cake in the same way with the same amount of gold and eat it again before breakfast. That will prevent gout for a year. The gold will lie in his stomach for two months without irritating or ulcerating it. If the stomach is cold and full of mucus, it will warm and purge it without danger to the person. If a healthy person does this, he will remain in good health. If a sick person does it, they will get healthy. Again, take pure gold, heat it in a clay pot or on a piece of pottery. So heated, place it in pure wine so that it warms the wine. Drink it often, thus heated, and the gout will disappear. You can also do this for fever. Or if you have a tumor, you can heat gold in the sun and rub it around the swelling and the tumor will vanish. I like how confident she is in like the the idea that gold has healing powers. Like it's the best metal, so clearly it must have special abilities. Obviously. But we haven't gotten to the best one. Here's the best one. One who is deaf should prepare a paste of gold with gold dust and flour as described above, and stick a little of it in his ears. The heat will pass into his ear, and if he does this often, he will recover his hearing. Will he now? That's what she says. I like that it specifies if he does this often, so you can always be like, oh, we just haven't done it enough, we just haven't done it enough. Just keep going, just do it again. Gonna keep putting stuff in your ears. I'm sure it'll it'll work this time. (laughs) All right, now we are on to silver. Silver is cold because it contains cold wind, which makes even the earth cold. Like this, this makes sense to me for some reason. Like, like gold is hot and silver is cold. They do have hot and cold color palettes. They do. It just makes sense to me, which I guess is, I don't know, maybe why it makes sense to them. Mm -hmm. If you have a super super fluidity, if you have extra humors, (laughs) (laughs) I can't do big words. I can't do them tonight. (sighs) Anyway, if you have extra humors that you cough up, you should heat pure silver in the fire and then put it in good wine. You should do this three or four times so that the wine gets hot. Then drink it before breakfast and at night and it will diminish the humors. This is very good to do for hot and moist humors because... The natural cold of silver is sharp, 
And when it's joined with the heat of the wine, it like alters the humors in your body. I see. She says that you can also eat food in a silver dish and it won't harm you. Hopefully, unlike lead, we'll see if she says that. I'm curious. Right. That's a good thing to know. Yeah. Now we're on to lead. Lead is cold. It would harm a person if taken into the body in any way. So there we go. Hey, good job. They did know. That's great. It is indigestible and just like the scum and refuse of other metals. Wow. Okay. Bold. If a dead person begins to swell up and lead is placed on him, the lead will restrict the swelling a bit. Why do you need <laughs> to regulate the swelling of dead bodies? Just bury them. Well, maybe maybe there's been a plague and you can't, you know, there's too many dead bodies. And right, if I there's only a few people in the village. Sprinkle lead around until someone gets around to burying oh. them. If, however, lead is placed on top of a living person who is beginning to swell, he would completely split and be unable to live. He'll burst? <laughs> He'll split. Oh my god. The coldness being like the scum of other metals going through him would split him, is the explanation. I guess that makes as much sense as anything. Yeah. So, yeah, don't put lead on any bodily swelling. Yeah, just I, I I like that she's very firm about like don't use lead as a as a curative. It doesn't work. It it'll hurt people. It'll hurt people. Inclu it might even split you in half. Yes. Tin. Tin is more cold than warm. If a person puts tin on his skin so that his skin and flesh warm up, it will carry illness into his body because of its coldness. If a person eats or drinks from a tin vessel, he will get sick because tin is like poison. If the skin around a person's eye droops, he should reduce tin to ashes and place them in pure wine. At night when he goes to bed, he should smear the wine around his droopy eyelids. The eyelids will become healthy and beautiful since the coldness of the tin tempered with the heat of the wine heals and sets right the flesh which hot humors shake up and let slip. However, this does not ri get rid of cloudiness in the eyes. So it helps your skin around the eyes, but not your cataracts. Does it make you sick to drink from a tin cup? I don't think, I feel that doesn't sound right. I think so. I think you can because there is lead in tin, is there not? No, tin's an element. Oh, what am I thinking of? Only extremely high levels of tin or some organic tin compounds can make you sick. I'm looking at Wikipedia. There's a page on tin poisoning, but it's mostly, but it says cases of poisoning from tin metal, its oxides and its salts are almost unknown. On the other hand, certain compounds are toxic. Mm. Nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea have been reported after ingesting canned food containing 200 milligrams per kilogram of tin. So you have to have a lot of it. Yeah. So I guess technically. Yeah. All right. Okay. Now we've got copper. This is really cool. Copper is hot and quickly grows cold. Because if you've ever seen like a copper roof, as it ages, mm -hmm. it goes from this beautiful golden color or brassy color to the blue patina. It's yes. beautiful. And that's what she's talking about, which I think is awesome. It's like a penny. Copper is somewhat like a golden spark. That is, like the sparks that fall from burning coals. If a person has fevers of the kind that arise in the stomach but not quotidian, tertian, quotian, or a ag, egg, egg. Anyway, I don't know. if it's not one of those kinds of stomach fevers, then you should take five pennyweight of pure copper. You should put this in a beaker of Franconian wine. 
not just any wine, but Franconian wine. Boil the wine until it begins to be reduced and then remove it from the fire. He should drink it moderately while fasting for nine days. The fevers will cease. But if someone has gout or virgichig... I can't do that German word. Hang on. Virgichtiget. Yes. We've, we've done this word before. It basically just means if you yeah. have gout. Okay. So that he is completely contracted and bent, take pure copper and throw it into the fire until it is hot twice. Take it from the fire and let it cool down. Throw it into the fire a third time. When it is then hot, place it in good wine and cover the top of the vessel so the heat and the vapor do not escape. Then give it moderately warm to the person to drink and the git in him will cease. If someone eats or drinks poison, take good wine and a third as much vinegar and mix them with rue juice. Place a bar of pure copper in fire, and when it is hot, place it in the wine so that it warms up. Drink the warm wine on an empty stomach for three days. The poison will leave through nausea or evacuation of the bowels. I like this recurring thing where the way that you use metals to heal people is to use them to heat wine and, and like, medicinal mixtures. Yeah. That, I'm wondering if they think that some of it will eek off into the liquid or... If it's just the presence of that metal in the wine or what. Yeah. Interesting. If you have animals who have constriction of the throat or pain in the head, you can place a large piece of copper in a cauldron, clay pot, or bucket, pour water over it, and heat it until it boils. Sprinkle the water on the animal feed so that they eat it and the malady will disappear. There you go. Practical tips. Yes, feed copper to your sheep. Well, feed copper-infused water to your sheep? Yes. Anyway, brass. Brass is hot and made from something else, just as lime is made from a stone. What? <laughs> I think it's like lime as in, like, limestone. No, I got that. But, but made- yeah, it just says brass is hot and made from something else. Like, does that mean... Th- is, is she referring to the fact that it's an alloy? It's not, like, a metal... On its own. Ah, yes, because she says that next, brass is not natural, but is made from other metal, just as a soldier is not a soldier from birth, but is made a soldier. Therefore, it is not as useful in medicine, because it's not as pure. It harms a person more than it helps him. It is a good analogy. If a person wears it as a ring on his finger, or if any of the the flesh heats up from it, it will attract more illness than health. Alright, so brass rings, bad. Apparently. I want to know if there's any, like, witches or wiccans or crystal people who wear brass rings or avoid brass rings for this reason. I would be curious. Anyway, iron is naturally very hot and therefore is strong. Its strength is useful for many things. If someone has iron next to him so that his flesh warms up, it is less harmful than tin because iron is warm and correctly balanced. When its heat is roused by the fire and placed over a person's stomach, it chases off the cold humors and makes his stomach sick. If one's stomach is cold so that he's in pain from it, he should take a thin sheet of iron and heat it on the fire. He should then place it warm over his stomach and then remove it. He should heat it again, place it on his stomach. If he does this, he will be better. This sounds like a way to get burns on your stomach. It does. Iron historically has a lot of properties about protecting from the fae. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious whether that has anything to do with it. But she doesn't talk about any of that here. So now we move on to steel. And this is the last one. Steel is very hot and it is the strongest form of iron. 
It nearly represents the divinity of God, whence the devil flees and avoids it. If you suspect there is poison in food or drink, secretly place a hot piece of steel in moist food, such as broth or vegetable puree. I don't know how you're going to do this secretly, but okay. If there is poison present, the steel will weaken and disable it. If the food is dry, such as meat, fish, or eggs, place a hot piece of steel in wine and pour the wine over the food. If there is poison in it, it will suppress it so that it does less harm to the person who eats it. Or you could just not eat the food, but okay. Also, place the hot piece of steel in a drink, whether wine, beer, water, or any other beverage. Any poison present will immediately weaken. If steel, so heated in the fire, has been placed in poisoned food or drink, or if wine heated with the hot steel is poured over poisoned food, whether bread, meat, fish, or other foods of this kind, the power of the poison will be restricted and weakened. There is so much power in the steel that it dries up the poison, making it less able to harm the person who eats or drinks it. It will not be powerful enough to kill a person who tastes it, even though he may swell up or become sick for a little while. He will be able to evade death if the poison is weakened by the hot steel as described. I like that once again, that's building in kind of a, um, a buffer saying like, no, now it won't. Make there so there's no poison. It won't get rid of the poison. It'll just It'll weaken the weaken poison. It. You might get sick, but you won't die. So if you're like terminally paranoid and you're attending every meal with a steel knife and a candle and like heating it up and stabbing each like each piece. food item before you eat it. Then you'll be fine. Well, you won't be fine. <laughs> you might still get sick. But, but you can know that it'll it would have been worse if you hadn't been doing yes. that. This is really good advice for someone who's paranoid about being assassinated. So, yes, I feel like this you could also include in maybe not a D&D game unless you wanted to make it part of your character, like flavor. But in a novel, I think that would be hilarious. Yes. You have a really paranoid king who's very, very careful to do this before he eats every time. Yeah. And it's just like I've, I've, I heard it somewhere. It's hot steel weakens poison. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Or his physician prescribes it or whatever. And he's, he's just sitting there like, hey, I got it. I got it. <laughs> or a really paranoid hermit or magician who's like, no, they're going to come after me. They're going to poison me. He's <laughs> like, I know how to fix this. It's just a very theatrical uh, solution because it's basically here's how you can stab poison away. And I kind of love that. Muscle wizard casts fist. I like it. Nice. Anyway, do what you will with this information about metals and alloys. Yes. So there you go. All right. I think that's it. Anything else? No, I think that's it. Thank you for listening to the Maniculum Podcast. Please consider leaving a rating and review on iTunes to help support us. If you're interested in exclusive merch and continuous exclusive content, consider becoming a patron on Patreon. To see our sources and our notes, you can check out our blog, Marginalia, at themaniculumpodcast.com. You can also join our Facebook group, The Maniculum Podcast, for more medieval and geeky related discussions. And feel free to reach out. We are always excited to listen to you guys and hear what you have to say. We're on Twitter at Maniculum, and we're on Instagram at Maniculum Podcast. Special thanks to Sandra Boyle for creating our music. You can check out their project, Sugar Glass, on Spotify. All right, so I'm going to turn on a light. It's too dark over here. Oh, it illuminates your flannel so nicely. Thank you. Yes, it, it brings out the highlights in my... 
I was going to say eyes, but there's reflection on my glasses, so... Your beard! The highlights in your beard. Yes, it brings out the highlights in my beard. <laughs> it's a magnificent beard, listeners. If you haven't seen it, check out the website. Oh, that's true. I keep forgetting there are actual pictures of us up, like, out in the wild. Yes, in at least one location. There's also, of course, pictures of me on Facebook, but I don't think the listeners have, or should, uh, find me there. <laughs> if you want to interact with us on Facebook, you, we've got a group for that. Go to the group! Anyway, starting anyway. the text before I get distracted again. 